Would you please take your Bible and let's turn in uh, the book of Matthew as we continue to go uh, verse by verse through this book. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew 12. We're going to be verses 15 to 21 today. Matthew 12, 15 to 21. And I'll read that in just a few minutes. All right. I want to begin by uh, talking about a verse in uh, the Old Testament book of Zechariah. In a couple of weeks, my Sunday school class is going to begin an in-depth study of Zechariah. But in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on the colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a prediction before Jesus Christ came that he would be showing up in Jerusalem one day and proclaiming himself as the Messiah and the King of Kings. And he's going to do that by riding into Jerusalem on a very humble animal in a very humble fashion. And that concept really grabs us here that a king would come so humbly. Usually, kings are full of pomp and circumstance, and they're full of themselves, and everybody has to bow down, and they do all this stuff to them. Uh, Jesus didn't come that way. He came in a very humble situation, riding on the colt of a donkey. So the greatest king of all the universe, whether people want to admit that or not, he is the greatest king of all the universe, and he comes in humility, and he comes gent in, with gentleness or gently. Now, just a minute ago, we looked at a pictorial representation of the Messiah who is pictured for us as the Lion of Judah, a ruler, and then as a lamb. And as the book of Revelation opens up, we see the lamb standing before the throne as if slain. And uh, it's this uh, magnificent picture of Christ, although a little bit gruesome because uh, there, are, there are the marks of his torture on him as he stands there. Jesus was called equally the Lamb of God as well as uh, it was prophesied about him that he would be the Lion of God of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is both of those. And sometimes in our world, people just want to focus on the Lamb part of God, of, of Jesus Christ, and he's all full of love and he's all full of caring and he, does, he wouldn't harm anyone and he wouldn't judge anyone. But that's not what the Bible predicted. It said that he is a Lamb, but he also is a Lion. And the reality of his actions as a lamb and a lion are, are very real and to be taken as real. A lamb is gentle and humble. A lion is not so. Jesus came the first time. I hope you get this. Jesus came the first time in the manger as a lamb of God. And he didn't come to judge. He came that people would believe in him. He said he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved in John 3.17. That's why he came. But the day is going to come when he has to deal with the evil of this world. He has to deal with the unrighteous. And that's when he's going to show up out of heaven, and a sword will be coming out of his mouth, and he will deal with the unrighteous of the earth. And that's the lamb. Uh, that's the lion, excuse me. That's the lion of God. Both of those in Jesus are in perfect harmony. I don't think that we would rather meet one or the other, actually. Each of them has a perfect place in our lives, the lamb and the lion. Uh, as long as we're on the right side of Jesus through faith in him for our salvation, we have nothing to fear, only to hope. If I am hurting, I need the lamb. If I am in danger, please give me the lion. He'll take care of me, right? Take care of you. Well, let's see what he has to say today in uh, Matthew chapter 12. You follow along in your Bibles with me. 
We're in verse 15. But Jesus, aware of this, and what he's aware of is the fact that there's been a confab with the religious leaders, and they're trying to figure out how they can destroy him and kill him. That's, that's what it's all about. So anyway, uh, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. So here's what Isaiah said. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice. And the other word we could translate there for that is he will proclaim judgment to the Gentiles. See, Jesus came as a lamb to proclaim that you don't want to have to face the judge. So come to me in faith. And then you won't face the judge of all the earth. But he came to proclaim justice to the Gentiles, so both the Jews and the other nations. He will not quarrel. He will not cry out. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. In other words, until he establishes justice. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So there's a ministry both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. We can see Jesus now pulling away from the Jews because he's been rejected there and he doesn't want to die before his time. So he's starting to pull away and go places where they are not. But when it's time, he will be back in the thick of things in Jerusalem uh, when he gives up his life. More is said about the one week in Jerusalem about his crucifixion than other issues in his life in in the uh, Gospels. Well, let's go back and look at this. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus knows what's going on with religious leaders and people follow him out of town and he heals them all and he warned them not to tell people who he was. What he's talking about is, I don't need you going around proclaiming I'm the Messiah right now with, uh, with a, a big throng of people uh, because that's going to mean they're going to try to take me and possibly kill me or try to make me king. And he's trying to keep that stuff down for, for a while. But in those verses, what we learn is this. Jesus left the area of imminent danger and he healed all the people who needed it. Jesus leaves this area of imminent danger, and he heals all the people who needed healing. Now, think about this. Jesus wants to get away from the religious leaders. He's going to head north of town here, and as he goes out, uh, there's going to be lots of people following him, and they're going to follow him by, by the hundreds, and he heals all of them. And so that's what's going on at this point. He's aware of this meeting of the Pharisees, and they are trying to destroy him, but Jesus knew that his time had not yet come. You realize, of course, that God has set a day and a time for everything in history. And what Jesus is saying is that in eternity past, when God decided when Jesus would hang on that cross, that was a certain day at a certain hour. It's going to start at 9 o'clock on that morning, and it's going to end at 3 in the afternoon when Jesus dies on the cross. All that was planned by, by God. And Jesus knows that today is not that day. Now is not that time. But there will come an hour when the power of darkness will be given power over Jesus so that they can exterminate him. But that time is a ways off from this point in the text. I want you to look at the Luke, if you would, please. Uh, chapter 22. We're going to be celebrating communion from Luke 22 this morning, but this is different. If you look in Luke 22 and verse 53, Jesus, who's being confronted by the religious leaders, says to them, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. In other words, you had a chance. I was there every day. Now you sneak up on me in the wee hours of the morning and arrest me. But he goes on to say this. But this hour 
and the power of darkness are yours. So Jesus is saying the day has come at that point. Now is the hour, and Satan's power is now going to be allowed to run its course, and we know that'll be uh, ending in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but that's not the day yet. So uh, Jesus did what was humanly possible to avoid confrontation for now. Does that mean he didn't trust the Father? Absolutely not. And I think we can learn something from that. We know what God's promises are, but we would be foolish to put ourselves in harm's way foolishly. We don't have to do that, and if we don't have to do that, then why would we do that and put God to the test? Jesus worked at getting away from these, these situations when it wasn't time for him. It doesn't mean he doesn't trust his father. It's just that uh, in this world we see both those taking place. Sometimes we have to make better decisions about our own care and about our own safety, and we trust God in it, and sometimes we give ourselves over to that because it's God's time. Over time, the more Jesus does and the more he teaches, the greater the hatred and opposition against him there will be. And so Jesus is trying to hold that down as well because he knows that as his popularity grows, more jealous and more envious the spiritual leaders become and they want to put him to death more and more. This is driven by their jealousy, according to the text. There is a crowd of people who follow Jesus uh, to a different location. There are many sick people in the crowd, and Jesus healed them all. You know, we don't have this whole situation like if you have an emergency, they send a, an ambulance to you and trained individuals help you with your wound and try to get you back to the hospital as fast as you can. Nothing like that existed. I mean, there were people practicing some forms of magic and some forms of healing and, and various things they found that didn't usually work, uh, like bleeding people out and stuff like that that didn't work. Uh, they didn't have what we have. Imagine the amount of sick people if we didn't have a hospital, if we didn't have doctors. Imagine how many there would be, how many things you wouldn't get over. There, there's tons and tons of sick people in Jesus' day. And what the Bible wants you to know, Matthew wanted to know, is I want you to know Jesus healed every one of them. The point of the Bible is there's nothing that Jesus can't heal, whether it's physical or spiritual especially. Jesus is the healer. But he warns people, don't spread the word about who he is. He's trying to hold down the issue, not of healing people or helping people, but of, he, of the fact that he's the Messiah. We remember that Jesus did not come only to heal people physically, although that's important. Jesus wants ultimately to heal people spiritually, because that's the healing that's going to last forever. Can you imagine having the gift of healing like Jesus did today? Uh, how tired you would be from people's needs, constant needs that never quit. They'd be at your door day and night and throngs of them. The word warned that Jesus used in this particular verse, uh, in verse uh, 16, and he warned them not to tell who he was, that, that word uh, shows disapproval or rebuke. It was a censoring of information. The warning was a disapproval or rebuke. He's censoring what he wants them to be talking about. The phrase, tell who he is, means make it visible, make it clear, make it readily known to everybody. Now, I'm not aware of anyone who, is he who was healed that kept it to himself. Everywhere in the Bible is an individual, they go right out and tell everybody about it. If they're healed from a demon and freed, they go out and tell everybody about it. If they're healed from a sickness, they go out and tell everybody. Uh, and I imagine the people did the same thing here. But maybe they kept a little quieter about the messianic uh, designation of Jesus. I don't know. However, whatever is going on, he is also getting away from the Pharisees, and there's going to be less conflict that way for now. In verse 17, Jesus tells us uh, through Matthew, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. 
So Jesus removing himself from those who hate him and showing love to the people in need is exactly what the prophet foretold that Messiah would do. So we want to understand, we can't believe in Jesus if the Old Testament told us the Messiah would do certain things and Jesus didn't do them. Jesus has to fulfill every prophecy that was made in the Old Testament about him. Over 300 prophecies he has to fulfill, which, by the way, is mathematically impossible in in most everybody's book, but Jesus did it. The text he's going to quote is Isaiah 42, and I want to go back and read that. It's going to be the same thing we see here, almost. Uh, A couple of parts aren't aren't there about the uh, justice at the end, but uh, the whole of it is almost uh, represented in, in the Matthean passage So in Isaiah 42, this is a prophecy, listen, some 700 years before Jesus Christ. Some 700 years. Uh, We love the people that predict the weather for us, but uh, they can barely get it right the next day, let alone 700 years from now. But the prophet was spot on because it came from God. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold. And this is in the servant section of Isaiah that started in chapter 40. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. Remember at his baptism, God broke through, and this is my son, uh, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I have put my spirit upon him. People say the uh, Holy Spirit's not mentioned in the Old Testament very much. He's all over the Old Testament. Here he is right now. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So that has the idea of judgment. So in this, in this prophecy, he's skipping from the first coming all the way to the second coming. And he doesn't tell us there's a break in there because the church is a mystery in the Old Testament. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice for the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. Now he's talking about the first coming of Christ. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He won't snuff it out. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his love. And that verse 4 is all things that are yet to come, even today. They're still eschatological. So we see we have things of the first coming and then the second coming. And and we need to understand that. Well, anyway, uh, what Jesus has done in the context of this passage is he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy about Messiah. He's doing exactly what the, the Lord prophesied in the Old Testament for him to do. That should give us courage. That should give us confidence in the text. Because what he said he would do, he literally is doing. And that's the way I think biblical prophecy should be uh, always understood, that whatever it says in the Old Testament should literally be fulfilled. If not in the Old Testament, then in the New Testament. So we look for literal fulfillment. That's why I'm pre-tribulational and pre-millennial, because I take it literally. The prophecy has to do with Jesus as God's chosen for the Messiah, healing those who need it and taking the message to a place away Uh, from the religious leaders to areas that are more Gentile. He is also a messenger of justice. Now, when we say messenger of justice, we're talking about the lion. When we talk about the other stuff, we're talking about the lamb. Well, in verse 18, God put his spirit on Jesus, his chosen, beloved servant, who would bring justice to the nations of the earth. So when we get back to Matthew, we look at verse verse 18, it says the same thing. My beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. 
And it's the Spirit of God that Jesus used his power to get done what he got done in his ministry. Isn't it nice to know that in your ministry, you also are given the Spirit of the living God to help you in your ministry. You have the same Spirit that helps you that helped Jesus. That's also encouraging. Well, the word justice refers to the activity of Jesus as the judge, especially on the great day of judgment of mankind. Jesus is God over all nations, not just the Jews, but everyone. So Matthew, in this re repeating of the Isaiah text, is telling us there's a way he will come at first, and then there's something he's going to do in the end. Matthew tells us that what Isaiah said was designed by God to proclaim him, that is Jesus, through Isaiah the prophet, and it's all about Christ. 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, God gave these words to Isaiah. And prophecy about Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis, thousands of years before Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, and there is no other. And as such, he was chosen by the Father as his servant, and he was beloved by God. God's soul takes pleasure in the person of Jesus, and so he's telling us, I'm well pleased in Jesus Christ. He is sinless, he obeys me, he walks with me, and you need to know he has the Father's stamp of approval on his life, and it's a good thing. Because if Jesus ever sinned, he couldn't be our Savior. If he didn't please the Father all the time, he couldn't be our Savior, but he did, because Jesus was sinless. He was tempted by, by uh, sin and sinners, but he, he never gave in. He was always sinless. Jesus will do all that God delights in by living a sinless life and choosing obedience. You and I started out in the womb as sinners, enemies of God. And then we were born and we chose sin as well. And there's none of us that can say we were ever sinless. We're not. There's none of us who, who would ever say that God delighted us while, in, in us while we were sinners. No, he didn't. But when we became Christians, we decided, you know what? I think I want to live in such a way that God delights in me. God delighted in David. Now, David had some uh, real hiccups of sin, right? And God still says he's a man after my own heart. God gives us grace in all of this. The issue is, friends, that I want you to understand is that none of us are perfect, but we can, by choosing to live for the Savior, live lives that God delights in. And that's what we try to do. It was a big deal that God loved the world so much that he was willing to give us the gift of his unique one-of-a-kind son. That's what only begotten means. It means one-of-a-kind son, one and only. And he gave him for us. God has placed the Holy Spirit on Jesus as well. Let's look at that for just a minute. Matthew chapter 3. We're talking about the Spirit coming on Jesus Christ at the beginning of his ministry. And in Matthew chapter 3... In verse 11, it says this. Actually, John the Baptist is speaking. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the ministry of Jesus Christ, not the Spirit. And we look down there again uh, in that same passage at verses 16 and 17. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting or landing on him, on Jesus. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There's Isaiah once again. And then you go back to chapter 12, which is where 
our message is coming from this morning. And look, look at verse 28. Jesus is telling us, I did everything that I did by the power of the Spirit of God who dwells in me, and the power of the Spirit of God dwells in you as a Christian, and so you can do everything you do by the power of the Spirit as well. But Jesus said to those who were against him, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, which is a, a third-class condition saying this is taken as true, I cast out demons by, by the Spirit of God, or since I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And it's here. So we see this relationship with the Spirit, and it fulfills what was said in prediction from Isaiah about Jesus Christ. And that's important for us to know. And we have that same Spirit by which to do our ministries. Uh, and I mean even the places where you work. And I know sometimes it's tough where you work. And I know sometimes it's hard, and you have people that are against you because you're a Christian. I know that. Uh, but I want you to remember, you never go to work alone. You never are taking something from somebody else all by yourself because Jesus, through the Spirit of God, is with you. Now let's look at verses 19 and 20. We're going to really get into the depth of the nature of the Lamb of God. I want you to think about how gentle and caring and loving Jesus is. He will not quarrel. He will not cry out. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. All right, so he's not a raging maniac full of anger condemning people. And he goes on, a battered reed he will not break off. And a smoldering wick he will not put out. And then he goes on to uh, talk about some things that are yet to come. Well, we learn here, and I'm going to go all the way through verse 20. Jesus is, as the lamb, non-combative. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is compassionate to all people until he leads justice to victory in the earth. So he said, Jesus is here as the lamb until the day he comes to lead victory in the earth, which means there's going to be judgment. So in verse 19, Jesus, in his first advent, did not come to quarrel or cause a big ruckus. Now he's going to do that with his enemies because they hate him and they hate his guts. They hate everything about him. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. They want to kill him. There's obviously going to be some uh, conflict there, right? But with the normal man or woman on the street, with those who are not set already on being his enemy, and even with his enemies, Jesus wants to come as a, as a gentle lamb. So Jesus will not force his voice on anyone. He does cry out and invite people to come to the living waters that are free, but that's a message of the lamb. He will go to the people with a message of hope, a message of salvation. He will force no one to accept his message. Just think about that. If, if Jesus was forcing everybody to become a Christian, everybody would be a Christian, but he doesn't, does he? He lets people make this choice that they have. But the offer is out there for all to hear and to see. So in verse 28, the people who are fragile, the people that are in need of divine help, whether it's spiritual or physical, will be treated with great care and compassion. And I hope that in your life, you can look back on various times in your life and you can say, that's a time when Jesus was unbelievably gentle to me and kind to me and loving to me as the Lamb of God. And those of us in need of divine help will be treated with great care and compassion. So he compares us to things that were well known in Jesus' day 
Everybody has seen a tattered reed, and he says he won't break it off. If he sees something that's already tattered and wounded, he's not going to go up and just break it off and kill it. Now, he's talking about not reeds, but people. The picture is one of a plant that has been through the storm, and it's very fragile, and it will not take much pressure to snap it in half and break it off. And Isaiah said the Messiah is not going to be like that. He's not going to see someone that is broken and hurting and just go up and finish him off, you know. Matthew is talking about the people who Jesus comes across in his ministry, uh, just like he came across you in his ministry. And one day you understood the truth, and one day you understood what he'd done for you and me. And so Matthew's talking about people who Jesus comes across in ministry, those who are weak, those who are worn, those who are fainting are the ones in view whether it's a spiritual problem or a physical problem. And then he says, even a smoldering wick, all right, is a fire that's about to go out. And this prophecy says, again, the picture is one of someone who's almost without life, almost can't go on. Maybe they're thinking of ending their life or committing suicide and getting it all over with. Jesus does not come along and just snuff out that light on purpose. Jesus would not come and promote death uh, to, the, to the light, but he would promote new, new life to that light. That was the ministry in his first coming, and it still is the ministry today. That's still what he wants to do. And that's going to happen until he has to come at that appointed time when he becomes the lion and the judge of the earth. By that time, everything on the earth is going to be wicked, except uh, those, those few who manage to find Christ in the midst of the tribulational trouble. And the world is going to hate him with a, with a hatred that we can start seeing now and is getting worse in our land and around the world. So this first ministry will come to an end. And in the meantime, in this ministry, we want to tell people about a God who loves them, a God who cares for them, a God who's not going to come and just break you off or snuff out your life for, for no good reason at all. But he's gentle and he's caring and he's that lamb. In verse 20b, this will be his mode of operation until that day comes when he will bring justice and judgment to the world. And that's the word here. When he returns again, he will not come to bring peace. He will come to bring a sword. And with it, he will strike down the unbelievers in the nation. So all you have to do is to stay on the side of the lamb is become a believer. Trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins. And in believing, you'll have eternal life. And that's all there is to it. It's free of charge. Now, we have a message of the love of God and his forgiveness uh, in the light of the truth, and people need to be prepared before he brings the sword. We'd much rather meet the lamb than we would the lion, for sure. His love is that he made the offer and the way to salvation free to us, and it comes from a gentle lamb who can love us. His wrath is for those who reject God's offer and rebel against him, and we must make a choice. Now, the sad thing is, in our world where Satan has ground in people's lives, uh, they, don't, they don't hear the part about the lamb. It just somehow just disappears, and all they hear is the judgment of the lion. And so they think that that must be what God is like, and they don't hear the other stuff. We need to hear the other stuff. But in verse 21, talking about the eschatological second coming, and in his name the Gentiles will hope, but he's also going to bring justice to them in verse 18. So Jew or Gentile, you can come to Christ. And he wants you to come before he comes as a judge. 
We all still have time to do that. So in verse 21, and in his name the Gentiles will hope, Jesus will bring the hope of salvation to the nations as well, the ethne in Greek. Uh, and, and that's uh, not been easy for the Jewish people of Jesus' day to swallow, that they're going to be equals before Christ. As Isaiah the prophet predicted, Jesus will take his salvation to the Gentiles as well. He will be the hope of eternal life for the non-Jews as well as for the Jews. The day that Jesus establishes justice is approaching. And it's been approaching since he left the, left the earth. We're just uh, about 2,000 and some years closer to the judgment than they were in Jesus' day. The day that Jesus has established uh, for justice is coming, it's approaching, and the Gentiles must prepare before that day as well as the Jews. And regardless of all that, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you need to be prepared today, right now. And if you're not prepared, you need to get prepared. How do I get prepared? Simple, it's free. And it's, it's, it's from the loving side of the Lamb of God. He said, I paid for your sins on the cross. And, and if you'll just believe that I did that for you, repent of your sins and believe that, I'll give you eternal life forever and ever and ever. <laughs> what kind of the deal? You, how could you pass that up? And yet people pass it up all the time. I don't get it, except that they're blinded by the small g God of this world in 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Well, I want to give you an illustration of the difference between these two, the lamb and the lion. And uh, this, this is about the military doctrine of shock and awe. Have you ever heard of shock and awe? <laughs> really? <laughs> you can raise your hand if you've heard that. No. Just old people like me? No. All right. and, and Lance, uh, shock and awe was what the whole first Iraqi war was about. It was going to be shock and awe. Okay, well, you'll catch on. Here we go. In 1996, some of you weren't born by then. That's okay. Two military strategists, Harlan Ulliman and James Wade, started advocating a more focused approach to war. And he's talking about physical war. Ulliman and Wade arranged for engaging, I'm sorry, argued for engaging the enemy with an overwhelming show of force that will destroy the adversary's will to resist before, during, and after battle. They titled their book on war, Shock and Awe. Shock and Awe, also known as Rapid Dominance, is defined as, and I'm quoting, a military doctrine based on the use of overwhelming power, dominant battlefield awareness, dominant maneuvers, and spectacular displays of force to paralyze the enemy's perception of the battlefield and destroy it, its will to fight. That's what they did in the first Iraqi war. When that thing hit, it was, it was all guns open and everything out, and things were happening right and left, and the enemy was, was giving up on the very first day, some of them, holding up the white flag. Anyway, the goal is to render your opponent impotent by using superior technology, precision engagement, and informational dominance. Shortly before the first Iraqi war, Ullman described what would happen with the shock and awe approach. Here's what would happen, and this is what did happen. You're sitting in Baghdad, and all of a sudden, you're the general, and 30 of your di division headquarters have been wiped out within the last hour. You also take a city down in shock and awe. By that, I mean you get rid of their power, water, and in one, two, three, four, or five days, they're physically, emotionally, and psychologically absolutely exhausted. And they give up. And it worked. Now let's shift gears a little bit and talk about God, okay? In response to human sin and evil, okay? So we're, we're talking about possibilities here. God could have used shock and awe. 
He could have employed a rapid dominance to crush us with his overwhelming power, dominant battlefield awareness, dominant maneuvers, and spectacular displays of force, exactly the things people were thinking as they watched Noah's ark start to lift off the ground and they had nowhere to go. Instead, okay, mark that, instead, the God of all authority and power chose a radically different strategy. Hope you hear that. Redemptive love being delivered into the hands of sinners, redemptive love delivered into the hands of sinners, and then laying down his life on a cross. How is that? For God conquering sin and death in the grave. And so he continues to say, Brian Blount says this, no wonder Paul had to acknowledge the foolishness of the cross, which is what the Bible talks about. I want you to remember Jesus came to make an offer, but he will have to judge sin one day. Just get related to the lamb. That's all you have to do. Three applications for this. Number one, the Messiah will faithfully bring justice one day to all the people of the earth, be they Jew, Gentiles, or half and half. Secondly, like Jesus, we're to have a ministry of sacrificial service. We are here to tell people and warn people about the lion coming, but we're also here to tell people about the love of the lamb who cares about you. And it's fun to watch people, maybe for the first time in their life, come face to face with a Jesus who they find out really loves them. And they didn't think that was true, but he does. So like Jesus, we are to have a ministry of sacrificial service. And then lastly, Jesus' purpose is for you and I to come to him for the spiritual healing of our souls. That's why he came and offered himself on the cross, to save us. So have you made that decision? His second coming will be the ultimate shock and awe. And we don't want to be a part of that. Well, um, I mentioned we'd go to Luke chapter 22 today and look at the communion service, so let's prepare for that. What's going to happen here is I'm going to read the text, and then uh, we're going to have Becky play for a little bit so you can pray during that time and thank the Lord for the fact that he's made you through faith a covenant member of the new covenant through the blood of Christ. And then I'm going to have one of the elders pray for us and we'll partake of the bread and then we'll do the whole thing over again. Well, if you're following along, it says in Luke 22:14, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've 